0: Well, good morning once again. Good to see you all this morning. Um, I hope you come this morning with an appetite for more than just chocolate bars. Although I have no gifts to give away, I was gonna. I was gonna so me and Jay were in the hall. And we were gonna pretend like he was gonna give me his keys, and I was gonna. I'm giving away a car, and he was gonna. But we weren't sure he was gonna answer correctly, so we kind of canceled. So, anyways, no game show, but we do have the Word of God, uh, and that's. Uh, I mean, we have a heart for that here. So, uh, if you would join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter 2. As we come to the second of the seven churches uh, that Jesus Jesus is writing a letter to, uh, and we come to the church in Smyrna. uh, But that actually means that we will be facing a subject this morning that's not always the most comfortable subject to talk about. um, Because it's the subject of suffering. And I do know know every person here, suffering is something... You can relate to pain and sorrow are things that are common just to the experience of living on this earth Uh, because ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, the reality is that the world has been full of pain and hurt. Uh, It can be a world of racism and hate of isolation and loneliness. It's a world where people hurt and lie and betray us, a world where people are dishonest and where trust is broken and where all too often... You know, we feel like people abandon us. And even on a personal level, suffering can be very real, very near to our lives. For some, it might be chronic pain that you're dealing with. For some, cancer or some other illness in your body. For some, it's the loss of a loved one, a child, a spouse. For some, it's divorce and separation. For some, it's losing a job. For some, it's simply old age. You know, the body just not being as young as it once was. But those things can strike anyone. And our faith in Christ is such a comfort in those times to us. But the suffering that we see in Smyrna is something even more than that level of suffering that we all experience. Because this church in Smyrna, well, they were experiencing a suffering that was actually caused by their faith. This is persecution. Persecution. This is a pain cause because they held fast to their faith in Christ. And Jesus, in knowing all that this church was was going through, he pens these words of comfort to this church. If you'd like to follow along with me. We'll be reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 this morning. Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that, again, as we open your word, uh, that, Lord, you would be a teacher us this morning, that, Lord, our Holy Spirit would would guide us, uh, guide our thoughts, um, our attention. Lord, all that we are, that, Lord, you would speak to us and help us to see the truth that you would have us see this morning. And in seeing that truth, Lord, you would transform our lives, that you would change the way we understand the world around us, because, Lord, we see you more clearly in it. Lord, I pray just for a hunger in our hearts for the word of God this morning, and ask that, Lord, again, you would be with us in spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I do have exciting news. Maybe it is a game show. Because we all just want a trip. A free trip. All exclusive. All expense paid. Five star. 100% imaginary. Uh, trip to Smyrna. Congratulations. Uh, that's where we're going this morning. City of Smyrna, and, and Smyrna, as you know, was the, the, the home of the second church that we read about in the book of Revelation. And one commentary actually points out there's a good reason that Smyrna would be number two on the list of cities that Jesus writes to, because Smyrna, it kind of considered itself a rival, a close rival of the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was number one, but, but you know they may have been the champ, but Smyrna... It really made a case for being sort of the first runner-up when it came to cities. Because Smyrna also, you know, they had great amounts of trade. There was culture. There was architecture. And even though, again, it wasn't quite as big or as wealthy, as influential as Ephesus was, Smyrna still it very much put other cities to shame. But you know what? Smyrna did have one thing that did set it apart From all other places, Smyrna had something about it that really made it stand out. Because you know how some cities have nicknames. Uh, New York is the Big Apple. Chicago is the Windy City. Edmonton's City of Champions. At least we used to be. (laughs) Calgary's Cowtown. I'm not sure if that's an official thing or not. Well, Smyrna had a nickname, and this nickname was the Ornament of Asia. It was a place. It was said to be so beautiful, it inspired poems and poets alike. Uh, you know, I love, I love Hawaii. Uh, it's, it's so beautiful. And there's, you know, when you go to Hawaii, there's this moment where you step off the plane and then you step outside and you just, you step into this paradise and you just go, wow, like, and you're struck just by the sheer beauty that's suddenly all around you. I think that's the feeling you would have if someone were just to plop you down on the main street of Smyrna, which by the way, it was a street that was so beautiful. The main street was called the city or the street of gold in Smyrna. So between the, just the sheer natural beauty of the place, and it's also, it was known for its architecture and all that stuff. Something that everybody agreed upon was that Smyrna was the most beautiful city in Asia Minor. In fact, one account by a writer named Aristides sang the praise of Smyrna, speaking of how the winds blow through every part of the city and make it fresh as a grove of trees. The brightness which pervades every part reaches up to the heavens like the glitter of the bronze of the armor in Homer, and the grace extends over every part of it like a rainbow. I mean, Smyrna was was a place that was so beautiful, even its name was beautiful. Smyrna, it means perfume or, or, or fragrance. It actually, it comes from the root word of myrrh, which was one of the three gifts given to Jesus, you remember, by the wise men. And myrrh was a product that was grown in that region. And yet, as we're about to see, this place of great beauty was not really a paradise for the Christians who were living there. You know, someone once said there are two things that can deeply touch the human soul. One is great beauty, and one is great pain. And for the Christians in Smyrna, it was a place where they experienced both. And with that in mind, we turn our attention to the words that Jesus wants to speak to this church in Smyrna. In Revelation 2, beginning of verse 8, he says, To the angel in the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And here again, Jesus introduces this letter by reminding this church of who is speaking. And he uses the image here that of, of, of he is the first and the last. And all through the Bible, that is a name reserved for God and God alone. It is a divine name. It, it speaks of eternity. It speaks of one who transcends both the beginning and the end, the first and the last. But then Jesus also adds the words who died and came to life again. And those are words... Of life, words of eternal life, words that are reminding this church about the reality of life after death. And for this church, they would have been words that offered great comfort because of the circumstances that they were living in. Because as Jesus continues into verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And here we may need a bit more background about Smyrna. Because adding to the natural beauty of that city, Smyrna had also erected what were said to be glorious temples to the various gods. And I mean every god available. Chuck Swindoll says, uh, heathen culture thrived with almost unparalleled splendor in Smyrna. Zeus, Hermes, Apollo, Artemis, the city hosted a banquet of gods from which to choose from. But you know, of all of those temples, those great temples in this city, the most notable temple of them all in Smyrna was the temple devoted to Caesar. Uh, Because way back in the year, about 23 BC, Smyrna actually competed against about a half dozen other cities in the Roman Empire for the privilege of building the very first temple to honor the emperor of the Roman Empire. And when Smyrna became, you know, was won that competition, they became the main center for something they called the cult of emperor worship. And that was a badge of honor for the city. It was a feather in their cap. You know, I, you know, maybe they even had t-shirts saying, welcome to emperor city where Caesar is our God. There's even a story of, uh, About Rome, when Rome was actually fighting a campaign against an enemy in the east and things had gone very badly, and when the Roman soldiers were suffering from hunger and cold, it said the people of Smyrna stripped off their own clothes in order to send them to the soldiers. I mean, Smyrna loved Rome and they loved their emperor. And that's where things really began to get tough for the Christians who lived in this town because it became a compulsory act. For every citizen in that city to worship the emperor. Once a year, you were required by law to go into that temple, stand before a statue of the emperor, burn a little incense in a fire and proclaim the words, Caesar is Lord. And then they would issue a certificate and it was good for one year and it would prove that you were sort of a citizen in good standing. The problem, of course, is that Christians in the city believe that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And they wouldn't bow their knee or their hearts or their lives to any other. So the Christians, they refuse to take part in that ritual. And in a town that loved its emperor as much as Smyrna did, that decision would have very serious consequences for these believers. And Jesus here mentions two of them. Uh, The first one we'll deal with is Jesus saying, I know your poverty. In verse 9, because, you know, without that certificate that they get for worshiping Caesar, a Christian, they couldn't join a guild. They couldn't learn a trade. They couldn't hold a job. They couldn't own a house. They couldn't own land. They couldn't run a business. Financially, believers had no options in this town. John MacArthur comments on this, saying there are two Greek words that we use for poor, one basically means you're not wealthy. You just, you satisfy your basic needs, but you have nothing extra. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. This word means you have nothing at all. It is a state of absolute poverty and complete destitution. That's the circumstances of these believers. And it's led many to speculate that most of the Christians in this city were likely Slaves. Because there would have been no other way for Christians just to make a living there. They were so poor. And yet also don't miss that verse 9 says, but you are rich. And Jesus is speaking there of their spiritual wealth. Their treasure stored up in heaven. Because you know what? Spiritually speaking, there are poor rich people and there are rich poor people. And even Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became, for your sake, became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. And that's the richness that this church had in Smyrna. They were spiritually rich, but they were physically poor. But you know what? Even more than their poverty, Jesus mentions their tribulation. Their refusal to bow down to Caesar led this church to outright, the Christians to outright persecution in this town. They were put in prison. They were beaten. They were tortured. John MacArthur even adds, under Emperor Domitian, who was the the emperor ruling at this time, the letter was written, it became a capital offense to refuse to offer the yearly sacrifice to the emperor. And not surprisingly, he says, many Christians faced execution. And maybe that's why the word tribulation that Jesus uses in this verse literally means to crush something under a great weight. It would have been just a time of overwhelming sorrow for these believers. Uh, There's a guy named Glenn Spencer who who says, he writes this, he says, Smyrna represents a period of great persecution. The name Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh is a fragrance spite which must be crushed to bring forth its full fragrance. And the Christians of this era were crushed and persecuted. But the more they suffered, the more fragrant was their testimony. Then he says, during this time, thousands of Christians were brought into theaters to be fed to lions while spectators cheered. Many were crucified. Other were covered in animal skin and ripped apart by wild dogs. They were covered in tar and set on fire as human tortures. They were boiled in oil and burned at the stake. And that's the world this church in Smyrna was living in. That describes their life for these believers. And yet, if that's not enough, notice there's even more this church had against them. As verse 9 continues, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I and mean, talk about sort of getting it from both sides. They were hammered in both directions as a church because it wasn't just the pagans that were against them. Even the Jews in Smyrna were slandering this church. And the word that Jesus uses there for slander is is one actually we get the word blasphemy from. It's said to represent the strongest expression of personal defamation. It means that the Jews in Smyrna were really out to ruin the believer's reputation. And they wanted to use their words to just outright destroy this church. And I guess you might wonder, like I did, why all the hate? Like, why why did the Jews, of all people, hate this church so much? Well, There's actually two reasons that I think I can see happening here. The first reason was just simple self-preservation. Because, you know, back long ago, back when Israel was first captured by the Roman Empire, uh, they noticed that the Jews were monotheistic people. They only served one God, and they knew that forcing the Jews to, to worship other gods or worship the emperor or anything, like that it was a recipe for starting a revolution. So the Jewish people were actually given an exemption to emperor worship. They didn't have to do it. I think they replaced it with a tax, which is, you know, what good governments do. But they didn't have to worship the emperor. But then these Christians come along in Smyrna and they're refusing to worship Caesar and they're stirring up trouble in the city and people were beginning to hate them for it. And, you know, many people in that city would probably have seen these Christians as being just another sect of Judaism. So the Jews in Smyrna may have been worried that these Christians, you know what, you guys are ruining a good thing that we have going here. So they wanted to put as much distance between themselves and the church as possible. So the, the, the Jews were like, those Christian guys, they're not us. We hate those guys too. Like, boo, not Jewish. Like, no, they're not us. So the first reason made that that's why that might be happening. But secondly, and, and most importantly, the reason this was happening is just it's simple spiritual warfare. Even as Jesus says in this slander, he says, it's slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. So who are the Jews that are not Jews? Well, they were physical descendants of Abraham, but not necessarily his spiritual descendants. Now, Paul talks in Romans chapter two about the difference between the circumcision of the flesh, which all Jewish people had, versus the circumcision of the heart that only true followers of God possessed. And, you know, even in the gospel of John, John chapter eight, you know, as the Jewish leaders are speaking with Jesus in verse 39, it says, and they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And then skipping down to verse 44, Jesus says, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. And he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And you know, that's strong language that Jesus uses there, but it was needed to understand just how dangerous our enemy, the devil can be. And what we're seeing here happening in Smyrna is just, it's another example of the power of the evil one on display to turn the world against the church and the people of God. And it's the same reason that Paul wrote, you know, the words to that church in Ephesus many years earlier, Ephesus, Ephesians chapter six, beginning verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And make no mistake this morning that the enemy of our faith is still active. Devil is still out there. He's still attacking churches and believers every chance he gets. He still slanders us and tries to ruin our reputation. He's still setting people against us because we believe in Jesus. And he would like nothing better than to discourage us and cause us to lose heart, cause us to fear, cause us to compromise our faith and our values just so we can sort of get along with the world. And that's what the church in Smyrna was truly up against. And again for them it meant affliction, it meant poverty, Meant slander and tribulation. I know if that's all they had to face, it would have been enough. But as they say, wait, there's more. Verse 10, Jesus then says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. You know, as bad as it was for Smyrna, Jesus now tells his church, it's actually gonna get worse. And he says, you're gonna be tested. And you know, I I found it interesting just reading this week, a test can do two things. When you're given a test, it can show what you do wrong and it can highlight your errors. Or a test can reveal what you do right and it can highlight your strengths. And when God tests us, It's always to bring out the best in us. It's always testing for the purpose of increasing and refining our faith and character as the people of God. It is testing that is for our good, even though it is difficult. It's for our growth. And even though this extra tribulation this church in Smyrna was about to go through was only for a short time, Jesus gives a time frame. He says, 10 days. This time of testing and persecution that Smyrna was going through, it would have been a burden that for most of us would be something that's unimaginable. And you know, I'll get honest here. I don't know if I can begin to understand what it was like in Smyrna for a believer. What it was like for the people of this church to undergo what they were undergoing. I mean, I can stand up here, I can explain it, I can teach it, I can tell you the details... But I can't really know what it's like to be persecuted for my faith like that. I can't know what it would be, you know, the fear that, that soldiers might come in here at any moment and just drag us away at any time and put us in jail for being in church. I can't know what it's like to see members of my family die because they love Jesus. I can't know the torture or the pain or the rejection at the level that this church had to endure on a daily basis. But I do know that there are still many Christians today living in our world who can. If you want to go to the Voice of the Martyrs website or places like that, you can read countless stories of persecution that are happening in our world to believers right now. And I would actually encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to remember the persecuted church in your prayers. Because persecution is still alive and well in our world today. But you know, just because I haven't experienced that kind of persecution doesn't mean that this passage has nothing to say to my life. In fact, this passage, I think, still has very much to teach us about dealing with the kind of sufferings we do face in our lives. And the words that Jesus speaks to comfort the church in Smyrna in the midst of their persecution are words that Jesus can speak into each and every one of our lives as well. Because these are words that are true true in any of our sorrows. And there's actually five lessons here that I think we can learn from the suffering in Smyrna, from the words that Jesus gives them. The first thing is that Christ presents himself to the persecuted church as he who is first and the last. And there's great comfort in this life to know that Christ is the beginning and the end, that he's the Alpha and the Omega, that he knows all things and that he's in control of all things, and that all authority in heaven and on earth is His. All power is his. And in Smyrna, where people could, you know, be woken up in the middle of the night by a band of soldiers and thrown in jail at any time for any reason. I think those words are words of comfort, reminding them that behind all of the suffering and all of the chaos that life seemed to bring to them, that Jesus was still the one who was in control. Christ is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Mega, the beginning, and the end of all things. And He's in control. And that is a comfort in our sorrow. And that's the first lesson. And then Christ adds these words These are the words of Him who is first and last and who died and came to life. And to me, that is another reminder that we serve a God who understands our pain, that we serve a Savior who has known suffering Himself firsthand. Because we serve a King who went to the cross. And that means God understands our pain. And he enters into our suffering with us. And there's no one, no matter how much pain that you are enduring, there's no one who can say to Jesus, but Jesus, you just don't understand my pain. Because Jesus endured the cross. And on the cross, Christ suffered without mercy so that we can find mercy when we suffer. But it's just another reminder that we serve the Lord who is familiar with suffering. And he does understand all that we're going through. Which brings us to verse 10, where Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And here Jesus offers his people courage. Courage based on their trust in him. You know, the the most repeated command in the entire Bible is the command to fear not. Do not be afraid. And I actually read this week that this verse Uh, Verse 10 is the last time, the final time those words appear in the scripture. Jesus is saying one last time to his churches, don't be afraid. And we shouldn't be. Because you know what? So often it's not the suffering that destroys us. It's not the hardship. It's not the slander. It's not the poverty. It's not the adversity. It's the fear of those things that causes our heart to fail. And that's why we learn to trust in God. Because Jesus, he does not forsake us. He does not leave us. He does not fail us. He's the God who came to life again. That means he's present, he's alive, and he's with us. And we don't need to be afraid. And then in verse 10, he also adds, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Next lesson we learn is that in the midst of our suffering, there's a call to persevere. It's a call to be faithful. There's a call for us to overcome. And the reason for this is that the momentary trials of this life cannot compare to the glorious treasures God has stored up for us in the next. And I've always loved the words of Jim Elliott, who was martyred for his faith, who said, A man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot be taken away. And the Apostle Paul says much the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, where he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We persevere, we keep on going because as Philip Yancey reminds us, no discussion of pain and suffering is complete without the mention that they are only temporary things. Which leads us to the final lesson we have this morning and that lesson is just our hope. Now verse 11 says, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And that's a reminder Well, it's a reminder of heaven. It's a reminder that one day, despite all the suffering we go through here and now, we will walk and not grow weary. We will you know, run and not faint, that every tear will be wiped away and we will be with the Lord forever because the second death, hell, holds no fear for us because we will enter into eternal life and claim the crown which Jesus has prepared for those who have suffered for his sake. And as believers, we have a hope that's bigger than even death. Hope that's bigger than this world. And our in our great suffering, Christ, he wants to remind us of our even greater hope. Which is really the lesson I want to leave with you this morning. Remember Christ. And remember your hope in him. And that's what we do as we come to communion again this morning.